Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this afternoon knowing that you are the ancient of days. You are our God, but you are the God of all things. This universe, this creation that you have made is for your glory and your glory alone, for the praise of your glorious grace. And so we ask God that this afternoon as we gather under your word that you would bless us by your spirit to receive and to be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with all of you this afternoon. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. Most of you already know that. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We are continuing a study through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, where we are studying the story of David verse by verse, chapter by chapter, going through his life and really understanding what it is that God was doing in the raising up of this king and what it is that he wants to teach us about ourselves, about who he is, and about what he wants from us. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, which we read last week, was the rebuke of David by the prophet Nathan in light of his great sin, his greatest sin of his life in taking Bathsheba and killing Uriah, his friend, Nathan comes and rebukes David. And if you remember the story, he tells David a story about a sheep that was stolen and slaughtered. And David is angry about it. And then he responds with the words, you are the man. David, this is you. It's what you did. And if you look at verse 13 in chapter 12, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Seems a little bit too easy, doesn't it? Seems like a little bit of a cop out. He gets to admit his sin and get off the hook. And there must be more, right? There must be more to the story. And the Bible tells us that there actually is. See, today we are going to go into Psalm 51, which is a psalm written in response to this experience of being rebuked by Nathan, of having his sin thrown before him. As King David sees who he is, he writes Psalm 51, which is a psalm that has often been called the chapter on repentance. That's what we're talking about this afternoon, repentance. Have you heard the word before? I'm sure you have. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard about repentance at one time or another. John MacArthur once said that repentance is at the very core of our Christian faith and at the very core of our salvation. In a similar way, when Martin Luther, the great reformer, began the Reformation, he posted his theses on the wall or on the door of the Wittenberg Castle, and the first thesis said that when the Lord Jesus said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. That as Christians, all of life is repentance. And of course, what Luther was referring to was the words of Jesus Christ himself. When he began his ministry, he went out into Israel proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. True Christians of every century have acknowledged that it is the essential, foundational, non-negotiable truth that we must repent to come to God. Maybe you nod your head this afternoon. Repentance is important. I believe that. We we believe that as a church. But before you get too comfortable in those choir seats, let me ask you another question. If repentance is so important, 
If the Christian life is all repentance, if repentance is what takes a sinner and makes him right with God, then are you sure that you have repented? Are you sure you understand what it is? This psalm, Psalm 51, is a psalm of true repentance that teaches us to repent. So if you would read with me Psalm 51, we'll read it in its entirety, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. To the choir master, the psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem that you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. As I said before, a psalm of true repentance that teaches us how to repent. The first thing that we see in this psalm is that true repentance, according to the Bible, according to David, true repentance requires confession, specifically confession of sin. If you look at verses 1 through 5 again, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And these beginning verses show us that repentance requires confession, an understanding of what exactly sin is. That if we're ever going to find forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation with God, it requires us to acknowledge our sin. Now, sin is kind of a bad word these days, right? It's something that most people don't want to hear about, especially if you are in the secular culture. But even in the church, sometimes people don't want to talk about sin. Only the judgmental people talk about that. Only the hypocrites, only the backward-minded people talk about sin. But sin is all over the pages of Scripture. And in these verses, we see three Hebrew words that give us a fuller picture of what sin is according to God. These words are pesa, Ewan and kata, okay? And you don't have to pronounce it right. I probably mangled the pronunciation. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But these are the words, pesa, ewan, and kata. And the first word, pesa, which is translated in verse 1 as transgression, is a word 
that speaks of rebellion. A crime or an offense, a transgression against a boundary of a law. And this word speaks to the idea that we as human beings have rules. We have boundaries, we have limits, but sin is breaking those rules, crossing the line, breaking the law, so to speak. The second word, ewan, is translated as iniquity in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. It is a word that means guilt. It's a state of being someone who is under judgment, condemnation, or punishment because of what you have done. And the third word, kata, it's the most general of these words. It's translated in the ESV as sin in verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. It's a word that refers to failure or missing the mark. Maybe you've heard that before. Sin is missing the mark. It envisions a standard, a goal, a vision of who we are supposed to be as people created in the image of God. And yet, kata refers to the fact that all of us have fallen short of it, that we miss the mark, that when we don't live up to who God says we should be, that is sin. It's failure. So how do we sum up the idea of sin, what it is that we're supposed to confess in repentance Sin is breaking God's rules. It is falling short of God's righteous standard. And it is the truth that in that situation, we are guilty before him. David begins this psalm of repentance by saying six times in the first three verses that this is the truth of his situation. If you look at the verse, he says, it's my transgression, my sin, my iniquity. And he says that multiple times over. David says, I have broken God's law. I have failed to live as the person and the king God wants me to be. And I am justly under God's righteous judgment. And look at verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David's understanding of sin, that he has broken God's law, that he has failed to live up to God's righteous standard, shows that his understanding of sin, the understanding of sin we need to lead to repentance, must ultimately be vertical. Do you get what I mean by vertical? It's not just about, I messed up with someone in this world. It's not just that, about, uh, that I, I messed up this relationship, horizontally speaking, with another person. It's about the fact that sin breaks our relationship with God. You see, all the words for sin used here, and David's expression in verse 4 tells us that at its core, what we need to confess, what we need to know, what we need to fully accept is that sin is primarily sin against God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, when I used to read this verse and this psalm, I used to wonder why it is that David would say this, because it seems a little bit false, right? Obviously, David has sinned against some other people. You guys know that you read the story, right? David um, obviously sinned against Uriah. He had him killed. He most likely sinned against Bathsheba. We don't know the exact situation, but he used his position as king to commit adultery with her, to wrap her into his sinful desires, He probably sinned against Joab, making him be part of this scheme to kill Uriah. He sinned against the nation in deceiving them in his foolishness. You could fill a book with the names of people who might reasonably say, yeah, David sinned against me in this great sin. But David says, against you only. Why? Why would the scriptures say this? 
It's because what the scriptures teach is that pesa, ewan, kata, transgression, iniquity, and sin, they are only wrong because God says they are wrong. God is the one who decides what is right and wrong. And so he is the one who judges it. Sin is sin because God is God. And if we're ever going to understand repentance, we must get this. It's not just about repairing what you've broken here on earth. It's not just about mending fences. It's not just about saying sorry to that person you offended. Sin and repentance is about getting your relationship with God right. Because that's what sin breaks. The Puritan Ralph Benning once famously said that the sinfulness of sin consists in this, that it is contrary to God. You see, true repentance requires for us to confess that we are sinners. And as sinners, that has created a great rift between us and our creator, our ruler and our judge. When we transgress his law, when we violate his command, we are under his judgment. And our sins, which mess up this world, they offend the God of the universe because he is the one who determines what is sin, what is right, and what is wrong. And so we must confess this before him. Our sins are ours. We own them. They are sins against our creator. But the psalm goes even deeper than that. Sin isn't just a problem with what we do. It is actually a problem of who we are. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What is going on in that verse? David is not cursing his mom, okay? He's not saying something was wrong with his mom. He's not at all saying that there was something messed up in the circumstances surrounding his conception. What he's saying here is that there is something that he understands. That as he looks at his sin, he looks at how he has offended and broken the law of his God, he realizes that there is something deeply, originally, fundamentally wrong with him. He says his birth and conception were wrapped with iniquity, not because of something his mother did, but because both he and his mother are descended from Adam and Eve and children of the fall. Another great Puritan commentator, Matthew Henry, paraphrased it this way. He said, David says, Lord, I have not only been guilty of adultery and murder, but I have an adulterous, murderous nature, and therefore I abhor myself. <clears throat> this is an incredible verse in scripture and one that lays out for us what the church father Augustine called the doctrine of original sin. Have you guys heard that before? Original sin? The Bible teaches in many places, but powerfully here, that we aren't sinners because we sin. No, we sin because we are sinners. Well, what do I mean by that? Let me paraphrase another way. You aren't a good person who sometimes does bad things. The Bible says that by nature, human beings are bad people, sinful people who do by nature what pleases us and not what pleases God, what is good to us and not what is good for other people, what makes us feel right, not what is actually right. And you see Psalm 51 begins by showing us that true repentance requires not just that you confess that you, you sometimes make mistakes. It requires us to understand the depths of our sin as human beings to see ourselves as sinners apart from God. Have you ever called yourself that? 
Maybe you, you, you accept it in your mind. But to hear it said out loud is really a different thing. You know, years ago, I was um, going to CVS. I don't know why I was going to CVS. Maybe because I was feeling sick or something. I went to CVS, and there was a guy standing outside. And I could tell that he was a guy who was going to ask me for something. You know, you can kind of tell when people in the stores, around the stores, want to ask you for something. They're like, hey, man, what's up? And you know that they don't just want to say hi. Right? So I said, what's up? How's it going? And I found out he needed some money. He needed some help. He said, I have nowhere to live. You know, I've kind of been out on, on the street uh, in my car. I need some help. Would you help me? And so I said, sure, I'll, t- I'll try to help you out. Um, what's going on? I talked to him for a while. And eventually, um, I tried to share the gospel with him. I tried to tell him about Jesus Christ, about salvation, about all that. And he said, amen, brother. I, I know all that already. I am a Christian. I know God is caring for me. I know God loves me. Like, amen. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, and I said, that's great. Can I pray for you? And he said, sure, I'd love it. And so we began to pray. And as we were praying, I don't remember exactly, but I think what I said was, um, Father God, uh, I know that me and this friend, we're both sinners. And he stopped me mid-prayer. Okay? He said, hold on, hold on. I don't know that I would call myself a sinner. And so I finished up my prayer. I gave him some money, and he gave me a sermon illustration. <laughs> but he's not the first guy that I've talked to like this. Certainly isn't the last. See, if you listen to the words of David, the chastised king after God's own heart, he's Israel's greatest human king, and yet he is still a great sinner. And it's true for every single one of us as well. We are sinners, and yet the world, our hearts don't want to accept that. We balk at the suggestion. So many people think that they know God, that they love God, that they're right with him, that Jesus is on their side. And yet the Bible says by nature, that is not the case. By nature, if you are a human being, you are a sinner. You sin and you break God's law. There is a problem that we have. No matter how blessed you have been, no matter who you are, no matter who your parents were, if you want to repent, you must know that you are a sinner. See, let me say it as clearly as I can. If you have never recognized that you are a sinner, deserving of the righteous judgment of God, the penalty for sin in hell, you are not a Christian. You cannot be a Christian. If you do not see yourself as a sinner by deed and by nature, you will never repent and you will never be right with God. True repentance requires that we confess our sorry state of sin. As David says, our sin is always before us. We know it. We are our guilty. We transgress. Sin is something that we often do, but the heart of sin is deep inside us also. So confession of sin, this requirement of repentance, is not merely saying, I'm not perfect. Nobody is. It's a recognition and agreement that what is wrong with the world is me. True repentance requires confession of sin, of our sinfulness, and of the God we sinned against. But just because we have no hope in ourselves doesn't mean we have no hope at all. And this is what we have to see next. We are sinful, but God is a God of steadfast love, David said in verse 1. A God of great mercy. And so as we move on, we must also understand that the psalm teaches that true repentance starts with confession, but it also seeks restoration. True repentance seeks restoration from God. We see this in verses 6 through 12. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, 
and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. These verses mark a turn in the psalm, okay, a change. While previously David was dwelling upon his own sin and his sinfulness, what he has done and the, the, the judgment he deserves, he now switches his focus to God himself, what God can and will do. And that shift in focus is a valuable thing for us as we try to consider repentance. It's why repentance is often called a 180. Have you heard that repentance is a U-turn, a change of direction going from headed towards sin, towards headed back towards God? David's prayer of repentance didn't stop at confessing his failures and his sinful heart. Instead, from how deeply he has fallen, from his vantage point of being utterly broken and realizing just how bad he is, he looks up and he pleads with the Lord that he might be raised up and restored with him. This is a great truth that we need to know about true repentance. We feel sorry. We admit we've messed up. We, we see how bad we are in and of ourselves. But then we plead with God for his solution. Because we know that he alone can restore us from that place of sin. We read it in the scripture reading, 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Not, not an, a morbid, constant focus on the things you have done, but a seeking God to restore you, to change you, so that you might go from sinner to saint in his grace alone. See, a church needs to talk about sin. If it doesn't, it's not a faithful church. But we don't talk about the wrath and judgment and condemnation in hell because we're some sort of masochist, right? It's not because we take pleasure in that. No, we talk about it so we might find restoration and salvation in God alone who can save. You know, the world has all sorts of solutions to the problem of sin. Maybe you can think of some of them yourself. A lot of people say the way that you deal with feelings of guilt and and inadequacy is to forgive yourself. Others say, just stop thinking about the past, right? Hakuna Matata, you guys have heard that one, I'm sure. Others say, get rid of that rigid morality, get rid of the Victorian era kind of stuff that holds people down. Just move on, just love, just be better. But these solutions fall short. Instead, it might be best to say that in seeking restoration and salvation, True repentance seeks God's solution to the problem of sin. And this passage lays out what that solution is. There are two parts here, cleansing and regeneration. Look at verse 7. David talks and asks God to cleanse him. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Now, being whiter than snow is a metaphor that requires very little explanation, right? Um, clean, fresh snow is white, and any other colored snow is not clean. But what about hyssop? What about hyssop? Hyssop is a plant. 
that that needs a little bit of explanation. It's an herb. It looks kind of like lavender. Or if we're in Texas, um, you guys have seen blue bonnets before. It looks kind of like blue bonnets, except it's a little bit bigger and a little bit denser on top. So there's this long stalk, and at the top, there's kind of a dense group of flowers that you can use in various ways. And in ancient times, they didn't have a lot of things. We have a lot of the tools we have. So they would use hyssop in different ways. It looks kind of like a, a big bottle brush. Okay, I'm trying to give you a picture of what this plant looks like. It looks like a big bottle brush. And so in the ancient days, they would sometimes use it to pick up liquid or use it as a paintbrush. Now, hyssop also had medicinal qualities to it. It was an herb that people might use for something like essential oils nowadays. And because of those two qualities, it was also involved with cleansing in the Bible and in the ancient Near East. Now, in the book of Leviticus, we read about hyssop, okay? We were looking at what does this plant mean in the Bible? And hyssop was used in the cleansing of someone who was a leper, someone who had a skin disease but was healed from it. And let me just tell you what happened, okay? It's a little bit strange, but I'll tell you the whole story, and I'll explain why in a bit. When someone who was a leper was healed in Leviticus 14, he would have to go to the priest for cleansing, and the priest was instructed by God to do something that's going to sound very strange to you unless you were doing your devotions in Leviticus this morning. He would take one, well, two birds. He would take two birds, and he would take a bowl of fresh water. And then he would take one of those birds, and he would kill that bird, and he would drain the blood of that bird into that bowl of fresh water. So now you got a bowl of water and blood. And then he would take the other bird, and he would take um, hyssop. He would take scarlet yarn, and he would take some cedar wood, and he would bind it all together, and he would dip it inside the blood and the fresh water, and he would take it out. So you got this bloody bird and this hyssop. He would release the bloody bird, and it would go and fly free, and then he would sprinkle that blood and water onto the leper who had been cleansed so that he might be acknowledged as being restored to the people. Now, a lot of questions you might have about that story. But David envisions this sort of cleansing. This is actually what he's thinking about. If you think about this image, it is incredible. A bird washed by the blood of another that is set free. A leper who is sprinkled with the blood of another to signify that he has been cleansed and restored. And I'm absolutely convinced that this is a passage in the Old Testament, a prophetic poem where David anticipates that the cleansing he needs would only come if he were washed and purged by blood. This is what Hyssop talks about. Now you say that that's just one weird um, story in Leviticus. No, Hyssop appears elsewhere in the Old Testament. And let me tell you where else it appears in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. In Exodus 12, 22, when the people of Israel did the first Passover, you guys know the story when they killed that lamb and they ate it and they, they prepared for that night when the angel of death would come and kill the firstborn of every Egyptian household. God said, take the hyssop plant and dip it in the blood and paint it on the lintel and the doorposts so that you might be passed over in your sin. And in Numbers 19, hyssop is seen one more time in the Old Testament. It's dipped in water mixed with the ashes of the sin offering. You guys get what, what I'm talking about here what the Bible says about being cleansed with hyssop, that, that, that this signifies that the blood of a lamb, the body of an offering for sin, is the only thing that can wash away our uncleanliness. It's the only thing that can make us right with God. 
the blood of a sacrifice, the cleansing that comes from it, this is what David has in mind here. He knows that God's solution to sin must include cleansing, and that cleansing must come through the sacrifice of blood. That if he receives this cleansing, the sin that has broken him will lead not to despair, but to rejoicing, as it says in verse 8. Somehow, though he knows about his sin, God can cleanse him so that the sin and failure and guilt that is in front of David's face will be put away from the face of God. And so David seeks restoration through cleansing. I said, secondly, there is restoration through regeneration. Regeneration, what does that mean? It means new life. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The term for create in verse 10 is an important Hebrew word. When I was in seminary and I began to learn Hebrew, and like I said, I'm no Hebrew expert, but I did take classes. In Hebrew, we would learn how to read and how to translate the Hebrew Bible, and our professor made us memorize on the very first day of class the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, which say, Bereshith bara Elohim, in the beginning, God created. Bara is the word for create in Genesis 1.1, and the interesting thing about that word that appears here when David says, created me a clean heart, is that that word is never used in the Bible for anyone other than God. Only God creates in this way. And so while the word means create, it's, it's just a general word, maybe to us in English, in the Hebrew, it signifies a supernatural divine act. What does this tell us? David, faced with the reality of his own sin, recognizes that God's solution is not just to, to seek God's cleansing, to be forgiven, but for God to make him a new creation going forward. David understands that true restoration cannot just be through washing away what has happened before. It must include the gift of a new heart so that he might be transformed for him to become something new that will walk according to the Spirit of God and no longer according to the flesh. And this is why he can say, create in me a clean heart. Because he didn't have one before. He didn't have one, but by the Spirit of God, he can. You know, a few years back when I started to um, get serious about trying to be a little more healthy because I had a bunch of kids and uh, I knew that I was still pretty young for feeling so bad, I decided that I would need to start working out. I hate working out, I really do. But as I was watching these workout videos with my wife, this one um, workout guru would keep saying something that I hated, but it was true. She would say, if you want something that you've never had before, you got to do something that you've never done. And it's true. If you want to be right with God, if you want to find forgiveness, if you want to live in the newness of life, then you need something that you've never had before and you must do something you've never done before. You must come to God in repentance. For those who repent, who seek the cleansing of Christ's blood to be made new in him, God can turn our sorrow and brokenness into rejoicing. You see, in the New Testament, we see hyssop once again. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, the soldiers who are around him crucifying him, they took a branch of hyssop and they put 
sour wine on it, and, and they, they offered it up to his face. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? That they would take this branch of hyssop, and, and as in the Old Testament, they would push it towards this offering, this sacrifice for sin on the cross, this bleeding Savior, as if to almost dip it in his blood for the cleansing of this world. In the New Testament, we talk a lot about a new heart. We talk about the fact that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is what David tells us about true repentance. The solution, God's solution, it's not found in us. It's not going to be in, in just doing better, picking ourselves up by our bootstraps, somehow becoming more moral people. No, it's going to be in receiving from Christ the cleansing and from the Spirit of God, the regeneration, the new hearts that we need. God alone has the solution. So true repentance seeks restoration from him. Maybe you know you're a sinner this afternoon. Maybe the truth is that you've actually tried to change over and over again. I know how that feels. You've prayed and you've asked God for help. Maybe you're kind of sick of it. I remember one person who told me, you know, I grew up in church and I went to the camps and I wrote my sins on the piece of paper and I threw them into the fire and God didn't just take it away. He didn't just wave his magic wand and get rid of the temptation for me. Why? Why didn't he do that? Maybe you feel that way this afternoon. The sinful desire is still inside your flesh. God hasn't waved the magic wand to make it simply disappear. What are you supposed to do then? How are you supposed to repent? Confess your sin and then seek his restoration. Ask God to cleanse you from your sin in the blood of his son, and then to give you a new heart by his spirit that desires to walk in his ways. It has to be God. It cannot be you. Salvation is all of God. You can do nothing to earn your salvation, but you can ask. You can ask. You can beg. You can seek for him to restore you. If you've never despaired of yourself, and then sought God's solution. You have not truly repented, but true repentance is available and can start today. Remember what I said about Martin Luther, that he said that Jesus Christ, when he said repent, will that all of the Christian life should be repentance. This is true of us no matter where we are today. That the soundtrack of our lives as Christians, as believers, should be continual repentance and a seeking of God. True repentance seeks restoration through God's cleansing and regeneration. And this leads us finally to the last part of the psalm, verses 13 through 19, where we see that true repentance requires confession, seeks restoration, and lastly, produces worship. True repentance produces worship. One of the last things that we notice here is that true repentance is marked by a change in the life of of David, and it produces something in him as well. Worship. It leads to making much of God, not much of ourselves. Look at what David says in verses 13 through 15. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. See, David shows us that when we are truly repentant, the result of that restoration is thanksgiving and praise and worship. 
He says he's going to teach others how to return to God. He's going to talk to other sinners and tell them this good news. He will sing aloud of the righteousness of God and the redemption of sinners like you and me. He will declare the praise of God with his lips. This is what this psalm says at the end. And all of this happens because of repentance. See, true repentance is ultimately about God. It's not about ourselves. It's not about anyone else in this world. It is about God alone. When I read this psalm, I realize that this isn't how I naturally respond to things. You would think that as a king, right? David is this king. He's chosen by God. He has all these responsibilities and people looking up to him. You would think that if you were in his place, um, the revelation of his sin, the rebuke by Nathan would give him a lot to worry about, right? What about my reputation? What about the kingship? What's going to happen to people if they find out that I did this thing? What's going to happen to the morale of my troops? What about my family? What about my dynasty? What about my reign? All of these thoughts that I would naturally have. And yet David, at the end of this psalm, isn't talking about any of those things. His concern is about what God wants and what God deserves about the praise of God. And so here's one kind of last hard saying in a sermon with a lot of them. If your repentance is done for yourself and for your sake and is not about God, it's not true repentance. True repentance doesn't seek God's restoration just to feel good about ourselves, just to kind of mitigate the problems that we cause. True repentance leads to people who make our lives about God in the way that they were always meant to be. Have you guys ever heard about the problem of evil? Have you ever heard people kind of talk about that, that there's this philosophical problem? Why is it that there is evil in this world? And and how can God be a God who is all-powerful and all-good and allow such evil? Well, the Bible has lots of answers for that, and uh, there's many ways we could approach it. But in these verses, there is one of the many biblical answers given here. God allows sin. God allows judgment. And God allows repentance and restoration so that he might receive the glory and the adoration and the worship and the love that he alone deserves. David's restoration is not about him. If God delivers him and restores him, he will sing aloud of the righteousness of God. If God doesn't, he will still sing about how he deserved the judgment he received. If God delivers him and restores him, he will tell how God is perfectly holy and just and cannot tolerate sin, but how he is gracious and full of mercy and has said loving kindness to those who repent. See, true repentance is not motivated by the simple desire to escape the consequences of sin. Though that's part of it, right? We, we, no one wants to go to hell. Right? But if the only reason that you repent and so you don't have to burn. You're missing part of the equation. True repentance is motivated by a desire to live no longer for yourself, but the glory of God. Kind of an esoteric thing, but it's also practical. Look at verses 19, uh, 16 through 19. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. 
God's deliverance should lead us to praise outwardly, yes, but what does this psalm teach us? It has to start first in the heart. See, when I say that repentance leads to worship, I'm not talking about music, right? I'm not talking about uh, these specific words that you have to say or, or those actions that you have to take. I'm talking, first of all, in verse 17 about the heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And this is an amazing verse that you should memorize and have written down on your heart. That the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, he will not despise. It is not about the forms of worship or the customs of the ceremonies first. A repentant heart is worship. That's what David is saying. Do you want to be a good worshiper? Did you want to be someone who knows how to bring praise and glory to God? Then be truly repentant. It's not about how good your voice is. It's not about how well you can play an instrument. Do you want to know if your repentance is true? Then ask yourself if it leads you in your heart to love God and worship. To declare that he is great. Even if the music isn't great. To sing aloud of his righteousness, even if your voice isn't strong to tell sinners the good news of salvation, even when they don't always want to hear it. These are the signs of a heart of repentance and worship. True repentance leads to worship that starts in your heart and affects all of life. Now, the end of this psalm, it talks about the city of Jerusalem, about Zion. And a lot of people sometimes wonder, what's this doing here? Is this like a a later edition by, by people in the exile? I don't think so. I think this is all written by David himself. It seems a little bit out of place, but I think it's important. David had just said that God will not want a a sacrifice or a burnt offering, but then he says in verses 18 and 19 that eventually God will. He will be pleased and delight in sacrifice and burnt offerings and offerings. So which one is it? What is David saying here? It seems like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Does God want a contrite heart or does he want sacrifice and offering? The answer is both. He wants both. He does want sacrifice and offering. He does want words and acts and deeds, but only if they issue from a heart of repentance. This is why true repentance is so unbelievably important to the Christian. See, nothing matters without this. Nothing that you do as a so-called religious person matters without repentance. The religious acts church attendance, without a heart that confesses sin and seeks God's restoration, they are meaningless and vain. To give your money to the church, to serve every week, to be a pastor while your heart pursues the sins of the flesh and the world without repentance only brings judgment on yourself. And I fear that there are so many people, especially here in Texas, in America, who who go through the motions of church, who identify with Christianity, who never realize that none of those things matter without a heart that is broken over your sin and seeks to be restored through the sacrifice of Christ. But for Christians, the flip side is true. When you are truly repentant, then all of life is worship. And all of those things that might otherwise be meaningless actually begin to matter again. When your heart is repentant, you can sacrifice and give offering and the Lord will receive it joyfully as from one of his sons and daughters. 
You can do the deeds you did before. Your life becomes a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And the things that once seemed like a burden can once again become a joy because of how great the steadfast love and mercy of God is to receive the repentant and cleanse us from our sin. See, the end of the psalm teaches us that the full extent, the full extent of repentance is not simply to feel bad, but to then offer to God the broken heart and the contrite spirit and in obedience see what he might do with that. If you're truly repentant, it will produce worship. Your spiritual life will matter. It'll make sense. Your obedience will become joyful. Your sacrifice will seem like nothing because you know your sin, but you also know your Savior. This psalm is the psalm of true repentance that teaches us how to repent. Through the life of David, that repentance requires confession of sin. Repentance seeks restoration from God and ultimately produces worship. Let me end with just a story from my own life. Growing up in church, um, as I mentioned before, I, I, I knew a lot of things. And since I grew up in church, I would tell people, if they were to ask, that I love Jesus. I would say it all the time. I remember that this was just a natural thing that you were expected to say and do. But I remember distinctly when I was about 13 or 14, I, I was with my younger brother, who's a couple years younger than me. And I asked him in a moment of confidence when our parents weren't around, when nobody would hear, I said, hey, do you actually love God? And he said, of course, right? He was shocked that I dared to even ask him the question. And I think I muttered back quickly, oh, I do too. Amen. I love God as well. Right, go tell mom and dad, please. But the question stuck with me. And throughout all my teenage years, growing up in church, serving in church, doing the things that a good Christian boy should do, I never answered the question because the truth was I didn't actually love God. I had no idea what people meant when they would say that. And I actually thought in my heart that everyone must be lying just like me. When I was 18, I wrote down some things I wanted to figure out before I left home as an adult. What did I need to understand? And I wrote down in my notebook this, ask my best friend, why does he love God? I haven't got a clue. The longer I pretended, the more I had to admit, even if only to myself, that love for God was something that was completely foreign to me. Fast forward to college. I was still kind of doing the things that Christians do, but I was doing a lot of other stuff that Christians aren't supposed to do too. I had many problems. I had my doubts. I had sin. And though I found myself living for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the fact that I had told myself I loved Jesus so many times in my life gave me this false confidence that I was right with him. That even though if you were to look at my life, I was seeking after everything he said not to, I still thought that I was good with God. And even though I was doing a host of things the Bible said was what sinners do, I never actually felt like a sinner. I would have stopped someone in their prayer and said, hold on, don't say that. And one day, though, I was finally actually listening to what the Bible says. I remember I was there in um, a service and, and a young man was preaching and he read from the words of Hebrews chapter 3. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
And for the first time in my life, I asked the question, could it be that I was a sinner? Could it be that my heart was hardened? Could it be that the reason I didn't understand what love for God was like was because I didn't actually love him? Could it be that what I actually loved was my sin? And as I began to pray that night, the answer was undeniably clear. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you've said you love Jesus many times in your life, hundreds of times, but what you actually love is sin. What you actually love is yourself. I saw so clearly that I was guilty of all the things I condemned in others. And yet somehow I had convinced myself I was okay for the first time in my life. I understood I was a sinner. But also for the first time in my life, I truly asked God to cleanse me of what I could never cleanse myself and then give me something that I never had, a new heart for him. I'm beginning that night for the first time in my life. I actually understood what it meant to repent. And I finally did understand why sinners could say they loved him. Jesus said, the one who has been forgiven little loves little. But the one who has been forgiven much loves much. And I assume that some of you here feel a little bit like I did. Maybe you had an experience before. Maybe you feel that way even now. Maybe you would easily say you love Jesus and you love God and nobody would dare question it. But you're not sure. You don't know. Or maybe you do know that you simply don't love him. I don't know what's in your heart. I can't read your mind and know where you are when it comes to God and sin and repentance and guilt. But I do know this because of Psalm 51. Wherever you are at, the next step, the best step, the thing that can change your life for good starting even today is true repentance. Let's pray.